Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in, because Big Mike has got the mic starting now. Hi folks, this is Mike Zlatnik, Big Mike, and today we will chat a little bit about how to winterize your portfolio with the potential upcoming recession. So let me start by saying that we don't have a crystal ball. Nobody has a crystal ball. Well, or I like to put it this way. I used to have a crystal ball. It broke. I can't find another one for sale. So predicting recessions or economic expansions is difficult. Predicting, predicting in general is difficult. Why? Because there are a lot of opinions, a lot of data, a lot of unknowns, and things could take different direction. But what's important is to prepare for different outcomes, to be ready for the economy taking different turns. What's really fascinating is that we might be very close to getting into recession. And we don't know whether recession is going to be severe or light, or we might just sneeze and uh, continue rolling forward. But let's talk a little bit about a couple of recent uh, economic news, and then uh, we'll talk about the portfolio and what you can do, what moves you can make to protect against uh, a possible recession. So number one, we had strong reported inflation, 8.5% annual rate year over year for March. This is the CPI. This is the formally, let's just call them reported inflation, the consumer price index. And the street inflation is probably closer to 15%. And depending on the source of data, it might be even higher or a little lower, but it's most certainly double digit in my opinion. I'd say mid-teens is about right. And then other interesting thing that has just happened, the GDP for Q1 was uh, just reported. And it was a negative GDP. It was a contraction, slight contraction, but it was a contraction. So if we see another quarter of GDP contraction, we'll be in, in a technical recession. That's the definition of um, recession is when there are two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So we might already be approaching that. If Q2 is going to be negative, we, we will be in a recession effectively. So without spending a ton of time on uh, long discussion, uh, we know that the interest rates are rising because the inflation is raging and the Fed has announced that it'll continue to raise interest rates. And if we are not in recession yet, raising interest rates will likely or possibly put us into a recession. And um, of course, uh, Fed will look at the data and as data comes out, they may slow down the interest rate increases or they may continue. If employment is full and inflation is high, the mandate is to continue to raise interest rates. So if we see slowing down economy in raging inflation, we might wind up in one of the two possible scenarios. One is a classic recession where there is negative uh, GDP growth for at least a few quarters. And in general, that will create uh, slowing unemployment. And at some point, the unemployment numbers should increase. The other possible scenario is stagflation. So what is stagflation? Stagflation is when you have slowing economy, you effectively reach a point of an economic recession but your inflation is high. And that's kind of a bad case scenario because basically you're dealing with the rising costs of living, rising costs of everything. At the same time, recession that will slow down income growth, will slow down employment or increase the unemployment. So those are not great outcomes, but they are possible outcomes. So what, what can you do about it? What can a prudent investor do today to deal with the potential slowing uh, recession? Before we uh, dive into that, I just wanted to point out what, what happens with rapidly rising interest rates. So rapidly ri rising interest rates create substantial increase for the cost of debt service, for the payments on the mortgages, on lines of credit, 
on other loans and folks that looking to borrow to buy a home or they're looking to refinance a home wind up paying substantially higher payments that they were just a couple of months ago. The interest rates have gone up so much that the payment factor could be up 30, 40, 50%, even higher. So for the same loan, folks may be paying literally 40% more today than a couple of months ago. And that's a very substantial. That hurts affordability quite a bit as folks can afford the same home they were able to afford just a couple of months ago. And the reason it, it is so painful is, is because we're coming from a very low interest rate environment. So when the rates start rising, we're coming from a very low rate, the increase is very substantial. So for example, let's just say for an investment property, not uh, owner-occupied, but investment property, before you could get a 5% loan. And today, just two months later, you wind up paying 7%. That increase of 2% relative to 5% is a 40% increase because two divided by five is 40%. So 40% increase in the cost of interest and the payment factor. That's how it works. Just wanted to point out what's happening with interest rates and how it can imp impact the cost of mortgages. Similarly, line of credit, if you had a line that was charging you 4%, now you could be paying five and a half, six percent Same impact that you have to pay a lot more for the same uh, amount of debt that you have. And that's slowing the economy down substantially. It's very painful for corporations with uh, leverage balance sheets, meaning that they have substantial amount of debt on their balance sheet and they have to pay interest on that those borrow borrowings. Uh, if they are fixed rate debt, multi-year debts, then the, there's no impact of immediate short-term rate increases. But if corporations have uh, variable rate debt, that's incredibly painful when the uh, interest rate goes up for a very low uh, point. Now let, let's just move into discussions. What can a prudent investor do today to evaluate their portfolio? So the first step is to review your portfolio and the portfolio goals. The reason reviewing portfolio goals is very important is because what has worked in the past may not be working going forward. You might've had some life events that has happened or the change in the economic song or, or, or what's being projected is, is making you nervous. So you're not comfortable with the same level of risk. You're not comfortable with the same portfolio. So portfolio evaluation, periodic portfolio evaluation is always a prudent step, but now is the right time. So we'll just talk about what kind of things you're going to look at when you're looking at the portfolio. So number one is your risk reward tolerance. So how much risk are you willing to take for whatever the reward or your target rate of return? So the higher the risk, typically the higher the projected rate of return, but also the higher the volatility. Perhaps you, you may become more comfortable with a low level of risk and low level of return. So risk reward tolerance is very important goal to uh, to consider. Your cash flow needs. So as folks go to the live event, for example, you're retiring, no longer getting active income from your uh, business or uh, your practice or whatever you might be doing. You might need passive income. So your cash flow needs could, could be very low when you're working and it could become substantial when you retire. And preparation for that, if you're planning to retire, should already be thinking about building the cash flow uh, or adjusting your portfolio to generate higher cash on cash versus uh, growth goals. The other really important uh, consideration is your basically total return on the portfolio or your risk adjusted return. So if you were in a higher risk portfolio, you may want to shift things down to take low level of risk that may actually increase risk, risk adjusted return. And um, most people don't even realize what level of risk they're taking. They're just investing in a bunch of stocks and bonds and um, maybe real estate, maybe other alternatives, but they, they have no idea what, what is the risk of each investment. And it's critically important that you actually pay attention. So if you invested in bonds and the interest rates are rising, you, your, your risk adjusted return is most likely negative because um, 
the yield that you're getting on the bonds could easily be offset by the dropping bond prices as interest rates rise. So uh, being in the bonds today is likely putting you in a negative risk-adjusted return, which is bad. So bonds just don't look attractive at all. Something, if you've taken it on the chin with bonds, the beating is not over. You might, you might need to get out of the bonds and consider other investments. If you stay put uh, and re- interest rates continue to rise to fight inflation, you may wind up uh, losing a good amount of principal. Uh, stocks themselves, uh, there are certain sectors of the stock market that are incredibly sensitive to in- rising interest rates, specifically technology stocks and companies that don't have a big install base and have a uh, substantially leveraged balance sheet. So if you don't have a big install base and inflation is high and interest rates are rising, you can't increase the prices on the customers you don't have. So your Microsoft of the world, it's a technology company, but the Microsofts will be able to increase the, their prices because they have a great install base. But some technology research companies, biotech, high-tech, just don't have the install base. And that's that, that impacts them disproportionately. And companies, I call them zombie, zombie companies, have a lot of debt. As debt service continues to increase, they don't have the ability to service the debt without raising more capital, and they just don't look attractive at all. There's another interesting concept uh, out there called risk-free return. As interest rates rise, risk-free return is typically return on the U.S. Treasuries. You could buy a two-year bond, and if you're willing to hold it all the way through maturity, uh, whatever the interest you'll re- receive, it is considered to be all essentially risk-free as uh, U.S. government is expected to always meet its obligations. So as interest rates increase, the returns that are, the risk-free returns increase. And then the alternatives like technology companies and other investments, other stocks, don't look as attractive. That's why rising interest rate environment is generally pretty bad for many stocks. Uh, not all of them, but for many. So today, with what's what's happening, bonds and stocks in general don't look very attractive. There are exceptions. Of course, there are great stocks today. If you are a value-picking investor and you can identify those stocks, you may do well. But in general, it's something that you need to pay attention to. So risk-adjusted return is something to really think about. It's a goal. The other goals that you have to think about is tax efficiency, uh, what kind of income you are receiving and how is it taxed, diversification. Especially today, diversified portfolio is of paramount importance. Just can't understate it. You just don't know what's going to go up, what's going to go down. So diversification is a way to mitigate risk. So portfolio diversification is something to think about. Your time horizon, how long are you investing for? And then liquidity, how much money you're going to need and when. And understanding what your investments look like. Some of them are liquid and some of them are illiquid. All those items that I mentioned should be part of the goals of the portfolio. And once you review your portfolio goals, you may want to uh, rebalance and diversify depending on what has happened recently. So if you've invested in certain stocks or real estate investments or other alternatives and they have done great, now may be the time to sell them and rebalance into uh, other investments that may do better in the down market. Also, uh, you're not as concentrated in the winners. So uh, wherever you've done well, so for example, take real estate. If you've been in some of the hot markets and your real estate has appreciated substantially, like Phoenix, Las Vegas, Southern California, Southern Florida, these markets are known as a yo-yo market. So if it's a correction, these markets may take it on the chin. So perhaps the opportunity is to sell some of those appreciated assets and then invest in more steady eddy markets, such as Midwest. Just a concept that you may want to consider when uh, looking at your portfolio. The rebalancing exercise is a very important exercise, and you can rebalance between 
publicly traded vehicles, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and uh, alternatives such as energy and real estate and so on. So rebalancing the portfolio into uh, more defensive, low-risk investments today may be a worthy exercise if you feel that the recession is something that you don't want to take a substantial hit on the chin. So, And then the third part of the exercise is to look at what you investing in. And there are private investments and there are public investments. And if you invest in real estate, a lot of real estate is private, although there are publicly traded real estate investment vehicles such as REITs. Nothing particularly wrong with investing in REITs. They're just publicly traded securities. And when you invest in them, you invest in them like you would invest into any other stock. But it's very difficult to build a personal relationship and understand in depth what each REIT does uh, versus some small, smaller private funds. Um, as a fund manager myself, uh, I feel that when I invest into anything, I need to know, like, and trust people who I invest with, which is step number one, one of the most fundamental and most paramount part of the underwriting and decision-making process is to invest with the folks that fit that know, like, and trust. They have the ability, the integrity, the experience, problem-solving uh, capability, good operators, folks that can execute great value as strategy. And, and this is a step number one, in my opinion, in moving your portfolio into private real estate with diversifying part of their portfolio into private uh, real estate. And um, please understand that all investments, including real estate, have risks. Just real estate generally has somewhat better predictability versus the stock market. A lot of investments in great value at projects with capable operators have a much better predictability and well-understood value at strategy. And when you look at real estate, in my opinion, there are two primary type of projects. And um, you can refer to the four quadrants methodology that I developed. And the four quadrant methodology talks about uh, investment grade projects and speculative grade projects, as well as it talks about income focused deals and uh, growth focused deals. So investment grade projects in my methodology uh, have strong downside protection. That's probably the most important characteristic. And downside protection varies. So just give you an example. What is downside protection? Well, if you're investing in a ground up project with a lot of construction risk and a lot of time uh, risk, completion of the project risk, well, it has almost no downside protection. That's a speculative grade project versus an investment grade project when you're investing in an existing property with strong existing cash flow, with a proper current mortgage, with great interest rate and strong, not high leverage debt and ability to execute value as strategy, increase rents, that mechanism or multiple degrees of downside protection exists in a project like that. If you're investing in a first lien mortgage, basically you're a lender like a bank on a private transaction and you, you have first lien position at a low investment to value ratio, that's downside protection. So the point that I'm making in today's environment, when you uh, are concerned about uh, risk of the economy going into recession, perhaps the time is to switch to more investment grade projects and reduce the exposure to speculative grade projects. Again, this is a um, consideration. It's not for everyone. It's different, different strokes for different folks. But uh, looking at your portfolio today and adjusting it for what you think is more defensive uh, in nature that outside protected. It's a consideration. So let's talk a little bit about what kind of asset classes in real estate or subclasses are generally defensive in nature. So today, everyone talks about the lack of uh, affordable housing. Affordable housing is incredibly undersupplied and high demand. So projects that uh, generate more affordable housing, again, affordable housing, I'm not talking about projects. I'm talking about workforce housing. Let's just call them a given area. There's uh, expensive housing, there's middle of the range, and there's affordable. 
That's what I'm referring to. So you could be in a class A area, in a great area, and the asset itself could be affordable, smaller apartments, but in a great location. So we love those type of projects. And what we particularly like today, investments in uh, hotel to multifamily conversions, especially garden style hotels that get converted, small apartments, some of them one bedroom, some studios, but they become one of the most affordable products on the market. So these type of projects in general have pretty good outside protection. protection. Of course, it's risk. It's a redevelopment. So it has a lot less risk than development of ground up projects. And the execution time and the cost is much uh, much better understood because the work involved on these type of projects is actually lower than building ground up. So we, we like some of these uh, strategies. It's just one example of what we continue to invest in. Uh, the next uh, really attractive asset class is a class B light value add multifamily if you can buy them right in the right markets. So we like Midwest markets. We like uh, projects that don't re require very, very heavy renovations because of the uncertainty of the materials and labor cost inflation, as well as uh, ability to execute gets complicated. But light value adds are fairly attractive. And uh, especially if the property is in a great location and the surrounding rent growth has been strong, these type of projects represent relatively easy lift, not a heavy lift type of value add, and they they have pretty good downside protection. Just an example of the strategy that uh, we continue to like in this in this environment. Other strategies that are have done well and continue to do well, storage is a defensive asset class in general, uh, typically does well during a recessionary environment. So we continue to invest and we like storage as generally as an asset class, but investors should be obviously aware that there's a lot of uh, overbuilt in the storage. Certain market, markets have been oversaturated. So uh, paying attention in, into the details of the project's location is critical with storage and obviously the right operators. We also like um, debt. As I mentioned uh, earlier in this uh, recording, uh, we like first lien debt, first mortgage uh, performing in distress because of the low risk, especially at the conservative loan to value ratios. And what is a conservative loan to value ratio? Well, it depends. Depends on the location, but conservative ratios typically stay, stand under 65%. In some markets, you want to be under 60 and even lower. So if you're generating first lien performing debt at 65%, it's pretty, pretty conservative. Can you go up to 70, 75? Yeah. In under some circumstances with the right type of borrowers, you can go to that ratio. Uh, but if you're buying non-performing debt, generally speaking, you, you want to be at a lower LTV than the performing debt. As you know, there's distress, typically 60% or less is the right ratio. Also depends on the jurisdiction. For closing in New York is a lot harder than for closing in Texas. So, but as an asset class, uh, distress and performing debt, especially in first position, is is pretty defensive in nature. And there are many other defensive uh, strategies that you can invest in, creating a more downside protected portfolio. So, one example is if you're looking to invest into equities versus debt. You may consider preferred equity versus common equity. So on a capital stack, the most senior uh, position is typically first lien debt, your, your mortgage. After that, you may have mezzanine debt or junior debt or not. And behind that is preferred equity. So if the deal has only uh, primary debt and has no mezzanine debt, being in the preferred equity position makes in investment into the deal safer than the common equity. So the most uh, risk exposed part of the uh, investment is common equity. Typically, you, you are the last to get paid. You may have the biggest upside in the deal, but at the same time, you're taking the highest level of risk. But when you invest in preferred equity, you are senior to the common equity when a given deal or a fund, and uh, your level of risk is lower, and your upside could still be very substantial. You could receive uh, seniority over preferred returns, seniority or return of capital, and some level of an upside. So for example, 
our flexible growth fund, Tempo Growth Fund 2, has two classes of units. It has preferred equity class of units and common equity class of units. So the preferred equity class of units receive 12% preferred return. It's a senior preferred return. It gets paid ahead of the common equities, 8% preferred return. So by investing in preferred equity of Temple Growth Fund 2, you get paid your PREF ahead of the common equity PREF. And also, you also have seniority return of capital. Uh, so preferred equity gets the capital ahead of the common equity capital, which makes um, preferred equity substantially safer than the common equity. But to compensate for that, uh, the common equity receives greater upside in the fund versus the preferred equity. So in the example that I, that I gave, the preferred equity receives 12% PREF, gets return of capital, and it only receives 30% of the upside in the deal. Uh, the common equity receives 8% PREF, gets its return of capital, and receives 70% of the upside. So the upside of common equity is substantially higher, but the risk is also higher. And the preferred equity has the, the safety of the 12% PREF. Again, it's not guaranteed. There's a risk in everything, but it gets paid first 12%, and it gets paid return of capital, and still captures 30% of the upside uh, to generate a potential target for the class A, class A preferred equity investors of 13 to 17% annual return. So an example that this, this is just an example of how you could take a position in a still grow fund, but take less level of risk and still participate in a substantial upside if the fund does well. This is a very, very important consideration when you are looking into what deals to continue to invest in with a lower level, level of risk, expecting that the economy may slow down somewhat. Anyway, there are other techniques, but I wanted to just cover some of these ideas or what's worth looking at today to basically make your portfolio a little bit more resilient and more resistant to downside uh, pressures of a recessionary environment. Appreciate your time and attention. Thank you very much for listening. Please reach out if you have any questions or feedback. Reach out to Alina, our head of investment relations, with any questions, concerns, or, or suggestions. And if you're interested in our family of funds, please request PBM, private placement memorandum, uh, to accredit investors only. Obviously, consult with your CPA attorney uh, professional before making any investment decisions. Thank you kindly. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund book, head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.